Good morning, and welcome to the maiden edition of the Intelligence Espresso from the Security Distillery. Every week we aim to distill world affairs in the field of security and intelligence to a bite-sized and hopefully entertaining morning briefing for our listeners. This is John Boyle coming to you from the foothills of the Dolomites in Trento, Italy. Today we'll be talking about developments in Tunisia and the Arab Gulf. But first... In Georgia, protests have continued into this week, despite the ruling party, Georgian Dream, declaring that it would withdraw its controversial foreign agents bill. The bill, directly out of the Kremlin's playbook, set out to brand any NGO or media organization with funding from abroad as a foreign agent. The proposition of the bill resulted in a punch-up in Parliament last Monday and the beginning of an all-too-familiar scene in the region of protesters calling for an end to alignment to Russia and a heavy-handed police action in response. While for the protesters, the battle may be won with the defeat of the bill, we find ourselves asking, however, what comes next? With the opposition party vowing to continue protesting, this week should tell a tale. Across the Black Sea in Ukraine, the war continues to rage. In an interview with Politico last week, General Mark Milley noted that nearly 1,200 Russian soldiers had been killed in and around the city of Bakhmut in a single day. He compared it to Iwo Jima and Shiloh, two famously bloody battles in American military history. Indeed, if we were to go by official Soviet estimates, that singular day is just short of the bloodiest year in the Afghanistan campaign. Building on this, the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington last week estimated that Russia has likely suffered from 60,000 to 70,000 combat fatalities since the beginning of the invasion. These figures, of course, are not particularly surprising given the intensity of the fighting, particularly around the aforementioned city of Bakhmut. Indeed, they echo much of what Western intelligence have been telling us about the ongoing attritionary nature of the war in Ukraine. Zooming out for a second, however, in viewing these figures, Inhumane as it is to reduce warfare to a game of numbers, it is abundantly clear that this has been the Russian military's most costly year since 1945 by a large margin. Indeed, the death toll of this war is likely exceeding every Russian and Soviet war since 1945 combined. Within this context, tensions have been reaching a boiling point between the Russian Ministry of Defense and the Wagner Group, according to the Institute for the Study of War. An ISW analysis has stated that the Russian MOD is deliberately trying to expend both elite and convict Wagner forces in the heavy fighting around Bakhmut in an attempt to weaken Yevgeny Prigozhin's hand. Indeed, over the weekend, Prigozhin has been more and more vocal in his attacks on the Russian top brass. This, of course, is a particularly dynamic situation, and media sources have been playing up the oncoming legitimacy crisis between Putin and so-called chef for months. This week, however, is shaping up to be a particularly critical one for this relationship. This was a premeditated terrorist attack on European critical infrastructure. It was also environmental terrorism. Does the EU care? Further west, the blame game around the blowing up of Nord Stream 2 continued last week. Since the explosion in September of last year, Russia has continually pointed the finger at the US, whom they observe have always opposed the building of the Gazprom operated pipeline. 
Western powers have pointed back at the Kremlin, which had routinely threatened Europe's gas supply up to that point. Recent claims, however, have begun to emerge drawing the link between Ukraine, or at least Ukrainians, and the sabotage. Media channels such as Die Zeit and the New York Times, fairly reputable, depending on who you ask, fairly reputable news sources, um, have all carried reports saying that six people forged passports and departed on a Ukrainian-owned vessel from the German port of Rostock on September 6th, three weeks before the explosion. The Times, the British Times this time, uh, they all seem to be time derivative, these publications that are, that are covering this, suggest that NATO governments have endeavoured to cover up the suspicions of Ukrainian involvement so as not to influence public opinion in Germany in supplying military aid to Ukraine. This, of course, is hotly contested by Ukraine's defence minister, Oleksiy Resenkov, who said that it would be a certain complement to Ukrainian special forces. Similarly, in Berlin, Boris Pistorius, the German defence minister, has warned against hasty conclusions about false flag attacks. Tunisia, one step further away from democracy. If we travel across the Black Sea, through the Mediterranean and all the way to Tunisia, we find ourselves amidst another crisis. Once synonymous with hope after the success of its Arab Spring, Tunisia is now facing economic collapse, institutional instability and democratic backsliding. Many Tunisians feel that the revolution that brought down the former dictator, Ben Ali, has been betrayed. Last Thursday, 9th of March, the President of the Republic, Kai Sayed, announced he would dissolve the democratically elected municipal councils and also its mayors. Local elections, which were supposed to take place in a few months, have been suspended until the rules have been changed enough to fit the President's needs. Meanwhile, local administrations will be directly appointed by Sayed in the form of quote-unquote, specialized commissions without clear time limitations. The president's justification for this move is that so-called non-neutral local politicians act as states within a state. This accusation is not new at all, as Sayed sets himself in a crusade against widespread corruption and political elites. This is why he is bypassing his own drafted constitution of 2022, Local elections would probably challenge the, for the reforms Sayed has been promoting. Even more, local councils are the only last democratically elected body brought by the Arab Spring. The same Sayed shut down parliament in July 2021 and dismissed the prime minister, taking charge of almost all the powers in his person. This was possible due to a context of many protests against the Prime Minister's management of the pandemic and the economy. That allowed the head of state to present himself as the saviour of the country that got rid of the Premier and, as he sees it, had to rule by decree to prevent chaos. Since then, President Sayed has gradually but strongly dismantled the only true democracy that the Arab Spring created. A growing authoritarianism is accompanied by a populist discourse, which is somewhat legitimized by the common view that the 2011 revolution did not bring stable institutions nor good economic results. Insufficient political and economic reforms resulted in a disenchanted population that is now suffering the consequences. 
Although there is not much violence, as a sequel of a mostly pacific coup, this has been a soft but decisive turn to authoritarian government. The Tunisian military is not a strong nor autonomous corporate actor like in other Arab countries, so it is not the base of Sayed's power. Likewise, he does not have a strong party behind him. He was an independent candidate supported by the Islamist and Nahda party, which withdrew its support when things started going wrong. The police, on its behalf, is not under strong control of the president, nor is most of the state apparatus. Sayed, instead, relies on the control of the high institutions of the state, but this top-down rule is very unstable, especially when your country is on the verge of default of public finances. In this sense, the presidential cabinet is negotiating the conditions of an IMF loan, but the IMF requirements are opposed by both trade unions and the main parties, as well as by a strong reticence from Sayed himself. This situation is aggravated by the distrust of state institutions. Instability is a word that frightens foreign private investors. And even more, the turn to authoritarianism makes it more difficult for Western countries to financially support the government. Perhaps this internal crumbling of the economy or a push by political elites could endanger President Sayed's position of power. Because the solution with the revolution and democracy has led to demobilization and a disorganized opposition conformed by a labor-centered major trade union and a powerless or almost powerless Nahda party cannot save such fragile democracy. Many Tunisians feel a word, betrayal, betrayal to the revolution and the freedoms it brought. The growing divergence between the ordinary people and the political elite has led to low voter turnouts in the recent legitimizing referendums organized by the president himself that were set to approve a purpose-made constitution. This 2022 constitution erased the decentralization of the democratic constitution of 2014, as well as the new one installed a presidential system with less checks and balances. Now, Tunisia is one step further away from democracy. The dissolution of local councils is only one part of a broader process. The last democratic remnant of the legacy of the streets of 2011 has vanished. And this is a symbolic setback for those who believed that democracy could flourish in the Arab world. Are your thoughts on Saudi Arabia and Iran re-establishing diplomatic relations, sir? Better the relations between Israel and the Arab neighbors. Now, let's move our focus eastwards, across the Mediterranean and jump to the Persian Gulf. That is for ones, and for the others, it's the Arabian Gulf. Middle East regional rivals Iran and Saudi Arabia has restored diplomatic relations seven years after they were broken in 2016. The unexpected announcement came after four days of talks between officials from both sides. This will translate into resuming bilateral ties and reopening embassies within two months. Dating back to 2016, Saudi Arabia cut ties with Iran following the riots against Saudi diplomatic missions in Iran. The tension between the two countries escalated in 2019 when Yemeni Houthis, the rebels, had 
drones manufactured by Iran, and they targeted oil facilities in Saudi Arabia, which impacted on the global oil output. In recent years, both countries have attempted to mend their relations, with Saudi Arabia placing particular emphasis on getting out of the quagmire of the Yemeni war. Today, the deal can help reduce the animosity that posed the stability and security of the Gulf region at risk, as well as exacerbated conflicts in the Middle East, including Yemen and Syria. However, the deal was surprisingly hammered out in China, where the head of the Iranian Supreme National Security Council held closed-door talks with his Saudi counterpart. It comes right at a time when the United States uh, with Saudi Arabia relationship has grown strained over Washington's diluting security guarantees, followed by Riyadh's decision to reduce oil production to keep crude prices high in reaction to the war in Ukraine by Russia. China, who hadn't played a relevant role in the Middle East, has recently built closer economic ties with Iran and Saudi Arabia bearing in mind that both are important oil suppliers to the world's second-largest economy. But this somewhat new role as political mediator is the first time Beijing has entered the game of the Middle East rivalries. Ray Tayek, an Iran expert at the Council of Foreign Relations, assured that, quote, for Iran, it is about escaping diplomatic isolation. For China, it's about deepening their engagement in the region and showing it's not just an energy consumer. And finally, for Saudis, it's about the Americans. The prospect of the conflicts which involve these actors remains misty, not to mention that now another player is gradually gaining more influence in the Middle East, China. so concludes the main intelligence briefing podcast thank you for joining us this morning i hope this was in some way informative and engaging preferably both we look forward to bringing you more insights and analysis in the future in the meantime if you haven't already please consider subscribing to our spotify for weekly intelligence briefings like the one you've just heard and following our instagram at the security distillery particular thanks today goes to jordy my co-host who you heard in the latter half of that podcast and Sabina, our writer.